This is an episode that we have been wanting to do for almost the entire time that we've done this podcast, which is now almost coming up on two years. And our guest is our dear old friend, Aitor. Aitor is a familiar name. Aitor Ursi is a familiar name to anybody who does research in the sovereign debt area, in part because he's done a number of the most important papers asking some of the toughest questions that the rest of us have not had the courage to ask. And this has been over a period, and he's done this consistently uh, for, for more than a decade now. So we're delighted to have Aitor with us since he is a true legend uh, of this field. So welcome, Aitor. Oh, thank you, Mitu. <laughs> you are always so kind. <laughs> no, not, not at all. And uh, we hope this is the first of many visits you make to our podcast, but I don't think we're going to be able to control ourselves and limit our questions to one topic. Uh, we have multiple topics that are very important and basic, and yet that our own knowledge is uh, highly limited. So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you uh, first about a topic that's been in the news a lot and that uh, I at least don't fully comprehend, which has to do with these things called special drawing rights from the International Monetary Fund. And just a few days ago, I was reading in the Financial Times, uh, Esther Duflo and Obijit Banerjee were uh, talking in their interview with the FT about how they thought the, the expansion of the special drawing rights could really help uh, solve the problems, the debt problems that poor and emerging market countries are likely to face. And uh, in some ways, th this came as a surprise to me that this uh, could be a solution to their problems, but I don't think I'm fully understanding uh, how much of a solution it is likely to be and how important or even what these uh, special drawing rights are. Now, uh, I know you have worked at or with uh, almost all of the major international financial institutions in the sovereign debt space. So I'm hoping we can start just with that basic question of what these SDRs are and why so many people are talking about them in the press these days. E yes, so let's, let's, let's try because uh... I mean, uh, special drawing rights. Um, they 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 were initially used to settle specific transactions. They were an element of of the Bretton Woods systems, and it was a complement to international reserves. That's how it was created. And like for the most, it has remained as that as a potential complement to international reserves. That is the the IMF. If the executive board agrees to do so can create these special drawing rights and uh, credit them to the corresponding to the central banks that are part of the IMF according to the SDR agreement and credit these special drawing rights to the central bank. These special drawing rights, they can be exchanged for any of the currencies that make up is the special drawing right is a basket of now five currencies. Right? So these special drawing rights, they can then they can be exchanged by any of these currencies. So this is providing when they are created and uh, assigned as they were in 2009 during the crisis, they provide uh, additional reserve assets to central banks. Uh, and I think that the reason why people feel that this can be a sort of game changer for the situation now and for the potential to contain any debt crisis that may be coming is that the IMF can create a lot of this, and I think that the discussion is about like a quarter of a trillion of new special drawing rights. I mean, that should be like 300 billion uh, US dollars. Uh, 
the, the question remains how because these these special drawing rights they go credited to who to, they go credited to the central banks uh, in 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 the same allocation as as the quote at the IMF, which implies that uh, like the countries that are gonna that could use these special drawing rights more, which are like the poorer countries, the the amount of uh, the amount of liquidity they are gonna get assigned is very small. I don't think it's more than eighty billion. Uh, and the question now, and I think that that's what is being discussed, is how can it be done so that these special drawing rights, the ones that are not going to be used, for example, by countries like the US, how they could end up being used by emerging economies. But basically what the special drawing right is, is a, is, is, is a, is a credit that provi is provided by the IMF to, to the central banks that make part of the IMF. And that's, that's what I think it is. Or uh, that's how I think it, it can operate in order to 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 become a, a force of solution or, or or a force of support for central banks in, in emerging economies. Um, and and no so, so Aitor, can I follow up quickly on that? So as I as I understand it, part of what you're saying is that although these SDRs create this important new source of liquidity, there's a kind of additional political step that has to be taken because the rich countries are the ones with disproportionately large access to these SDRs. And in order for, for this to do the work it needs to do, the rich countries need to agree to give some meaningful part of their SDRs to the poorer countries. And I know that the United States has sort of suggested it would give, I forget if it was 20%, maybe something much smaller, some part of its SDR allocation to poorer countries. Um, so I guess the, the question I have is just a very pragmatic one. Is the political will genuinely there, do you think, to among rich countries to make this a important source of extra finance for the poorer ones? Oof. I mean, I can see how, in on the one hand, is something they may want to do. Uh, I mean, like uh, being the IMF a global institution, if it wants to remain as that as a global institution, I mean, they should want to do this. Then uh, I'm I'm not very sure because I mean, it might be, it might well be that all these SDRs uh, end up bailing out people that uh, like some of those politicians that don't want to, to bail out. So I don't know how that can play out. Uh, but then, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, the the question is because maybe the U.S. and I don't know about that. Maybe is gonna just give away all these SDRs, right, and give them away as a transfer of uh, SDRs to other countries. I don't know how it will do it, or or whether it is gonna loan it uh, at five basis points, which is the minimum interest rate that can be charged on the lend on the lending of of these uh, drawing rights. I, I really don't know how, the, how they intend to do that. But I mean, one thing that could be done, and this is one thing uh, I'm kind of pushing the idea with, uh, with uh, Rava Adeski, with whom I'm working, uh, Rava is uh, the economic vice president of the African Development Bank, is that maybe these SDRs could be placed either as collateral or as additional capital, maybe even without voting rights to make no to make it non-political in different development banks in different continents, right? So this could give more firepower to the Caribbean Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the African Development Bank, and the like. So Aitor, if, um, if I may continue on this vein, but maybe connect it a little bit to the next topic that we're hoping to ask you about, because my sense is they're connected, which is the IMF's debt sustainability analyses and how just generally these DSAs are done. I, I don't understand uh, why this is being, th these funds that are going from the rich countries that have all these unused SDRs, to the poor countries are being routed through the IMF a mechanism. If the US wants to give a large amount of money to uh, very poor countries that are struggling, uh, why not just give it to them? Give them a loan or uh, say yep. that you'll give them a guarantee. 
uh, if I mean, my very uh, rudimentary understanding of using the IMF is that now you're going to have the IMF decide it make have its staff do a DSA, and then you go through the DSA process of whether you're sustainable or not sustainable, and have uh, maybe even austerity and all of blah blah blah. Um, why not just give the money if the U.S. wants to give the money? Just give the money. It, I, I don't understand why this is being so complicated through SDRs and maybe it's just so that people like me don't understand it. I mean, I guess, I guess that the point is that, I mean, like, because the IMF in the sense that is disagreement of central banks and has the right to issue this research for the central banks, which is like a currency that the central banks, they have to change at rates that are set. Uh, it creates liquidity. So, I mean, so you can put the burden of this stuff politically in the balance sheet of the Fed, and then it's the Fed, or either you make it fiscal, and then it is the Treasury who somehow is sending money, <laughs> but this needs to appear in both sides of the balance sheet, or you can do this uh, through the IMF, who has the capacity to create this liquidity out of thin air, and is maybe is more remote in the sense of the, the politics of it. I mean, because you are always going to have parts of the politics that are going to be against these bailouts of countries. Uh, we know how that works. We, there these people that think we need austerity because otherwise moral hazard is going to reign in fiscal policy. And you know that, that way. But, but, but anyway, I mean, I think that the point, I mean, like the, the point between the, I mean, like the, the, there is something in between SDRs and the loans. And this is conditionality and the DSA, right? But I mean, like at the origin of the IMF, the first IMF programs, they didn't have any conditionality, right? I mean, this is something that came uh, over time. And at the beginning, they didn't even have DSAs. If you look at IMF programs from the 90s, we, we've been doing this, trying to find dev structures in IMF reports. I mean, you, didn't, you don't even find information on the dev stock of public debt. They were not even tracking it. You see, you need to go to the 2000s and then you start finding all this debt sustainability analysis that you were talking about that becomes kind of the gate into the SDRs through the different lending tools, right? But this is more like, and maybe we are going to talk more about this, this is a risk management tool, right? It's as much as a laboratory where you design the programs as a risk management tool for the resources of the IMF, right? But then, I mean, it's again, it's political. So if, if the US would want, or if the countries would want, I mean, they could just like design an IMF uh, facility that is unlimited and is unconditional. And then they could lend all the SDRs they would want without the margin. It's just a matter of deciding they want to have that too. But that's why I'm talking that maybe an alternative is to place these SDRs as capital elsewhere and have these, those other regional banks that maybe they are more sensible to these kind of things uh, leveraging on that money. Well, maybe this is a good way, time to transition into the debt sustainability analysis that both you and me too had mentioned. And I think um, one of the things we had wanted to talk with you about is the IMF's role in preparing these and uh, maybe some questions about why the IMF is the dominant player in doing them. But can you just, maybe for some listeners who aren't familiar with them, can you just give us a uh, introduction to what these debt sustainability analyses are and why they're important in the context of the sort of common framework, the debt, the DSSI, the other sort of components of the response to the the pandemic debt crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me let me try, Mark. Uh, so you see this DSA, the debt sustainability analysis. So, I mean, this is this is a tool the IMF started to use in 2002 or 2003, uh, I think, at the same time as they were designing the exceptional access policy, right? So this was a time in which the IMF was starting to provide very large loans because the world was changing. It was not anymore a world of trade, a trade crisis or not only, it was also a world of capital flight, like in Asia. So you needed to provide a lot of money and upfront. And this was putting IMF money at risk. So they decided they needed to have like better tools and a better risk management. And this implied the development of this kind of debt sustainability analysis tools. Uh, what this is, is a set of technical instruments uh, that, that 
the IMF, but also other institutions, they used to understand the dynamics, the future dynamics of the debt external or public of a country. Uh, and like it has, uh, I mean, it, it, it is one very simple that we like economists call it, uh, uh, like it's, it's a debt accumulation equation, which is this thing that is telling us how the debt tomorrow, how the debt is going to be tomorrow, depending on how the debt is today, how your fiscal policy looks, how the interest rate looks, and how growth looks in the most basic form. It's like the, there is all this debate that because interest rate is so much lower than growth, then you actually don't need to care about the stocks. So all this comes from this debt accumulation equation that explains the future dynamics of debt. And for this debt equation to tell you how debt is going to behave in the future, you need to have a macro framework, which is another component of this DSA. The macro framework is the joint forecast of the important variables of the economies on the future. And this, to me, is the key of the DSA, because this is the different scenarios that the country may face under different situations, considering the different effects of the different policies that can be put into place. And then normally, this, the sustainability analysis, they have this, this baseline analysis, which you say, OK, we expect the economy to behave this way in the next uh, 10 years, 15 years. So it implies that debt is going to have these dynamics. Maybe it's going to be non-decreasing, so it's going to be increasing, so it looks very bad. And then, in, uh, depending on shocks, it's going to change one way or the other way. So that, that's that's what the debt sustainability analysis is. Uh, the IMF uses it, as I said, since the early 2000s. The other institution that makes a big use of it, I mean, like the IMF and the World Bank, they have a joint DSA. The other big institution using this is the European Commission, um, because they have like uh, all these programs, but also they have like the fiscal framework, and this requires a monitoring of public debts that they should be around 60%, you know, all that tune. Uh, what else? We wanted to speak about why this is going to be important in the coming, in the in, in what it may be coming through the common framework. So the common framework is adopting the Paris Club uh, ways, right? So if a country needs the relief and uh, goes to the common framework so that it can get relief from fiscal creditors from the G20, they are going to be doing the thing that the Paris Club does, which is they are going to send the country to the IMF so that the country receives a debt sustainability analysis from the IMF. And depending on what the debt sustainability analysis says, the country will have to execute the type of debt restructuring or another. So, Aitor, if I may um, ask before we um, go to the Paris Club, although we want to ask you about the Paris Club and your research on this, uh, the, from what you're telling us, it seems like if I think about what is the, the key linchpin to the entire uh, international financial architecture from countries, it, one answer could be the IMF's debt sustainability analysis. Like everybody, these new SDRs, the P Paris Club uh, Common Framework, everything seems to go through uh, the DSA of the IMF, uh, although, as you pointed out, uh, the European uh, authorities have, do their own uh, DSA. But can you uh, tell us a little bit about how good these are? Um, I know you have uh, strong views on this. You've done a number of papers on this. I've heard you talk about it, I think, somewhat critically. But part of what struck me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, and this was from hearing you, so I, I may not have understood uh, correctly, but I was very interested, is that we, debt sustainability analyses are incredibly important. Everybody uh, in this system depends on them. And yet there's very little research on how good they are and whether we actually do a good job or whether we need to think hard about improving them. Is, is this, am I in the ballpark or... Uh, Really, are we hitting the gold standard with DSAs? Wow. Well, I mean, I'm, 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 you see, my, 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 my first hand experience with DSA is, uh, is in Europe. Uh, I mean, I understand that, I mean, like, so in default, um, involved on official bailouts is something that is absolutely political, right? But, I mean, there is a sense in which 
it seems to me that there is a that, 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 that there should be in my view there should be a process in which maybe like uh, whoever has to take the political decisions regarding uh, sovereign bailouts or sovereign defaults or sovereign the restructurings uh, should be informed by the best technical analysis possible right so that you have like part of the decision is based on a technical analysis and the other part of the decision is based on how the politics need to play out given the best knowledge but it doesn't really seem to play that way right and like you see like uh, the, in europe for example the dsa that is run by the european commission outside of crisis times is a spectacular it looks 50 years ahead it has population staff it has pension costs it has everything is beautiful but if you see the kind of dsa that is being used when a country is really on the hook like you have a look at the fiscal monitor by the commission they issue it in january every year you, you look for greece it's a different kind of analysis, right? And it seems that there is this very, this very strong negative correlation between like uh, how politically contentious the situation is and how sharp the technical analysis looks like, right? But then when you think about like, I mean, why the IMF has this big role and what about the IMF? You see, I mean, like that, that's, the, that's the big fi fi firefighter worldwide right so when a country is finding itself in troubles vis-a-vis -vis its traditional creditors is normally going to ask for help to the imf so in this sense uh, that that is the, the very often is the last word before default no it's like uh, what their friend anna Kelpern calls the dsa the gatekeeper of the restructuring uh, so I think that that's why it has this kind of very central role, even like a rating agency, like ratings themselves, they have an incredibly important role, right? Because they are ingrained in regulation and stuff. But there, there is something about the IMF because it's the last line of financing before default. So, and DSA then is telling everybody whether the IMF is going to give money without restructuring or with restructuring. So I think that that, that, that kind of makes it very, very central. Uh, and I don't know. I don't. I don't know. If, I mean, I can. I can. I can talk a little bit more about. I mean, like because the IMF just changed the DSA very recently. So I don't know if you want to listen a little bit about. I mean, how they change it, what they have been doing, how I think is uh, very useful because I think it's very useful. But also, how I think that there are things that are missing from the technical perspective. So, so Aitor, I think as we head into break, maybe the the last part of your your comment um, is something that I'd like to hear a bit more about. Um, without getting us too deep into the technical weeds, I'm wondering, um, I know that you have given some thought uh, to this question and even have some criticisms of the way the DSAs are conducted. So I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about that and then we can, uh, we can take a short break. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you see, I, I, I mean, I, I, I was asked to, to, to use some time to, to think about how, 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 how the use of debt restructuring in, in, in program design has an impact on uh, medium and long-term growth, right? So, I mean, like, the, 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 the views I have, they, 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 they come a little bit from thinking about like program design and what happens in like uh, countries that uh, operate the restructuring uh, within an IMF program. Uh, you see, in thinking about the what I came to think that were important long-run implications for growth, this allowed me to think back about what kind of things may be missing from the design, from the macroeconomic framework where the programs are designed, right? And there are three, I mean, there are plenty, like, there's always like this thing with me that I can't stop complaining, but I think I have three things that are like, I mean, like um, broad and like um, easy to convey. I mean, one is the, 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 the measurement within the design of these programs and like if there's a need for uh, the restructuring because the design of an IMF program, what, what they sort of doing designing the program is trying to figure out how the financing needs of the country are going to be covered on a specific time frame, right? So maybe part of part of those uh, financing needs are to be covered with the relief, right? But maybe at some point in the design of the program, the country is going to re-access the market and it's going to start borrowing again from markets. The, this part, market re-access, is really key for IMF. As it is, and according to, to the IMF rules, uh, uh, 
an IMF program cannot go on if it is not providing uh, under the GRI, GRI account, if it is not providing for a lasting uh, reactions of, country, of countries to, to, market, uh, to market access. But there is no technical way in which this is measured. There is no at all. In the new DSA, they go some way there because they have something they call the, the gross financing needs module that tries to, to look a little bit into that, how big could be the size of a flight from the domestic bond market. So they try to go a little bit on that direction. But I, I think that is still really short. And this is a very important part because like when you think about like medium income countries, most of them, they start to have very large bond markets. So, so the amount of funds that can be potentially living can be very large. Uh, the second aspect is the, 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 the role of, I mean, DSA looks for the most at, uh, originally it was looking at external debt as uh, countries have evolved and problems have turned to be public debt that is also being traded externally. Uh, they have started to look into the dynamics of public debt. So DSAs, they have an external debt module and a public debt module. Uh, this public debt one, the domestic debt part is really, really poor, right? There is a, uh, there is a part of the financing of a government, which is maybe is not when their stocks are very, very large, it, it is not necessarily the largest, but it's the, 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 the financing by providers, suppliers, employees. Uh, the, there is a lot of like short-term creditors of the government. So these short-term creditors, they get defaulted. If there is an external default, it's almost certain that there is gonna be like mispayments with all these type of people. There is IMF work that shows that this kind of uh, payment performance vis-a-vis -vis residents, it has a massive effect on the size of multipliers. It's making them very small. There is research at the IMF that shows that this is having dramatic implications for the banking system, for the credit channel, with dramatic implications for investment and for growth. But nothing of this is part of the IMF framework. And I think that they should work further in order to understand all these dynamics vis-a-vis -vis domestic residents because they have very important long-term growth implications. And the last one thing, but this is something that, I mean, is coming now and they, I think that they will simply need to think more in order to accommodate to this, is the use of resource-linked financing, right? As we are seeing a lot of this in Africa with collateralization, like uh, loans that are being paid back in the form of like oil revenues or any other kind of uh, commodities. That would be it. Well, thank you so much, Aitor. We we have more questions on this, but uh, we should probably go to a break and then uh, transition on to some of the other questions we want to ask you, particularly about your research on the Paris Club. So we'll take a short break and then be back. So, Aitor. I know I said at the end of our last uh, section that I was going to ask you about the Paris Club, and I, I do want to get that, but I am confused about one thing, which I hope you'll help me uh, understand better. My guess is Mark understands it, but I want to clarify my confusion. What is the role of rating agencies? So my simplistic understanding of what the rating agencies do is they also have a whole bunch of economists and political scientists and accountants who are looking at a country's finances and estimating the country's future economic growth and ability to repay its creditors. Now, how is that different from the DSAs? Are, are they ever different? I mean, I would imagine they're correlated. What is the DSA focused on that's different from what the rating agencies are focused on? And then, you know, are there other institutions? I mean, I would imagine that like a Goldman Sachs or a Bank of America, or I mean, these are very powerful, rich, in, big institutions with lots of things. Or, I mean, is the IMF the, like, why are we always so completely dependent on this highly political body to do this crucial task? And then we yell at them when they don't do it like we did in Greece, 
what are all, what's the role of all these other institutions? Uh, I mean, um, the, the role is different, right? So ratings are used for credit instruments in general, and they are well ingrained in the regulation, and they are going to be telling us, uh, they are going to be telling the financial institutions, uh, they're going to be used by the regulators to tell financial institutions the amount of uh, the amount of capital or the amount of research that they need to hold because these instruments, they have a degree of risk or the other. But the objective of the two tools is a bit, is very related, is closely related, but it's a bit different. Uh, I mean, like rating agencies, I think they they are telling us what is going to be happening in coming quarters, right? The DSA is different. The DSA is uh, because it is also part of the risk management um, portfolio of the IMF, right? Uh, it covers the period of the program, so it can have uh, it can be looking at the dynamics of debt for a period of five to ten years, right? And it's more interested in like literally understanding the dynamics of debt, where the debt stabilizes, where the debt decreases. And as a risk management tool, the, the real target, the target as a risk management tool is understanding whether IMF resources are, are at risk, which is a little bit different than understanding whether some specific category of bonds or instruments rated by some agencies uh, is at risk of default. So I think those two things, they, they the, the, I mean that that's how this, this, these two measurements of uh, of default risk uh, are different. And then why we look again? No, why we look at this IMF DSA so much? Because uh, because that is the tool that is telling us whether there is going to be a bailout or there is going to be a debt restructuring. I guess that's why it's so critical, right? so critical for us that uh, we are interested in that bit of the entire chain. So I took. Me too had mentioned the Paris Club, and I guess I want to to make sure we have enough time to talk with you about some of your research there. So could we could we turn our attention to the Paris Club for a few minutes, and maybe uh, before we get into some of the sort of more nuanced discussion, maybe you can just uh, introduce us to what the Paris Club is, and and something that's always puzzled me, which is, why is it so damn hard to find out information about the Paris Club? Why, why is it shrouded in, in such secrecy, the, the dealings at the Paris Club? I mean, like, the Paris Club is, I mean, like, for, for a starter, it is an, it is an informal body. Right? I mean, it's not like, uh, there, there, there are no I mean, it, it doesn't have a legal form. It doesn't have a legal basis. Uh, it's very informal. Um, and when you look, I mean, like, I mean, like, it, it is uh, really shrouded by this kind of mystery, and it's very political. It's very political because it's like, uh, I mean, like, uh, advanced uh, rich governments determining what is going to be the, the policies vis-a-vis -vis debtor poor countries. That was traditionally the role, and like. What they tell you at the Paris Club is that in order for discussions to remain productive, deliberations are kept confidential. So there's very little that you can know about what's being agreed uh, indoors. Then they have these mechanics in which they allow the countries, the debtor countries in, then they kick them out of the room while they are discussing what's going to happen. They reach this minimum agreement in something that they call the agreed minutes. Right? And then they need to implement that minimum agreement, and this can be done. Like I mean, so they they agree to some minimum amount of relief, say. But then on the bilateral agreements that are gonna crystallize that resolution by the club, countries can go above this level of debt relief. And this is also like stuff that depending on different countries, you, you may you may get the information, you may not get the information. Uh, I mean, it's the way that has traditionally worked and. I mean, they seem to be very pleased of it, despite they claim they need transparency elsewhere in the financial system. I can't really say much more why they decide to do that way, but but they but they are they, they, they are they are very transparent. I mean, like what we did uh, was mostly of a quantitative nature, right? We tried to figure out as much we could from the different treatments and the amount of information that is this played publicly is very, very small. And like I discussed this issue with the Spanish Central Bank, 
or like the Spanish representative to the Paris club is, uh, is sitting at the Spanish Central Bank. And like, I mean, like they have information, but they have only partial information because again, uh, you see like they, they, they have the information on the minutes, but then you don't really know what happens on the bilateral agreements between different countries. So this makes it very, very difficult. Despite there has been some push towards transparency in the last few years by the Paris club. So Aitor, um, I, I want to know a little bit more about what your view from your research is about the Paris club. So, but let me preface it by saying, uh, um, I had always thought of the Paris club as sort of, you know, this, artifact of the post-colonial era uh, right. where the French were still really important and they, they, they had all these, you know, colonies that were transitioning to independence and, you know, you would go to Paris and you worked out this, all this bilateral debt. But, you know, 50 years later, sorry to my French friends, but they're just not that important. And I, I mean, I've been to the Paris Club to visit lots of times and is like a tiny set of like four people or something like that in like one or two rooms. And it's not the, I mean, it's not the IMF. It's not one of the major European institutions. Uh, it's not Goldman Sachs. I don't understand why it's important. And for the life of me, I can't understand why they're relevant uh, for the common framework and for, really helping the world get out of uh, the huge debts that we have in incurred across the world as a result of COVID. Like, why is the Paris Club still important? Why do, if it, if it is important, why is it still shrouded with secrecy? I mean, you're one of the only people who's done serious research into it. And even you're telling us that it's so hard to find out anything. And you are, you know, at the time you were doing the research, you were at a major European country that was involved in uh, the Paris Club. Why are they so important, Aitor? And um, are they doing a good job? Are they doing anything other than being in Paris? I mean, I like visiting Paris too. <laughs> really, is there anything else? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you know, like, we 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 did all this research about them, right? And then like we decided to get get give this title to like one of the papers we wrote with the, the information we managed to gather. That is uh, from debt collector to relief provider, right? Uh, and and maybe this is a little bit the story of how the 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 the, the, the governments that are behind that club they move but move maybe forced by the civil society from being this post-colonial uh, sort of like, I don't, know, I don't know how to say that because I mean, they, they had this flow approach, they had these classic terms. So they were kind of reprofiling and reprofiling at infinitum, the same debt that kept increasing with uh, the same countries to no solution. And they spent decades like this, right? Uh, like a little over time, and again, as civil society was pressuring hard, uh, the, little by little, they, they came up with uh, better and better terms, uh, maybe finalizing in the, in the Hippie Initiative and the complete elimination of debt stocks for many of these African countries and most of the poor countries. Uh, and at that point, the Paris Club stopped having this kind of like very important, uh, say, Role because of the volume of, 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 of credit provided. I mean, like most of the credit that they had provided was simply canceled out, right? The problem is that, like most of these countries going from there, they started to accumulate debt again. But instead of being with the official parties in the advanced economies, it has been with private parties in advanced economies and with the new official sector in the other side of the world, right? But then, I mean, as a matter of tradition, uh, Paris Club was key. Uh, you see, like, there's so much written about the sovereign defaults on uh, external creditors. And then, like, you go and you have 170 something episodes when you look a lot. Only Paris Club, there are like 500 of these reprofilings in the same time period. 
And you see, I mean, like historically, they, they, they I mean, Paris Club uh, the treatments were everywhere, everywhere, like Africa, they had everywhere, like uh, there were so many, much more than like uh, private debt. Uh, but then, I mean, like, again, as the, the, as, the, as, the, as the creditor structure has transitioned, I mean, like, those governments are important, they should be important, but because they are the governments where like Trafigura operates, or where all these uh, commodity traders that are ripping off Africa operate, right? So maybe they should be, I mean, that, that's how they have the potential to remain important, maybe trying to bring to order these this, this commercial creditors from, uh, from Western countries that I think that the, they are not behaving in a very ethical way vis-a-vis -vis many poor countries. Well, so that's, I think, and, and we've taken up a ton of your time, Aitor, so um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. This is my opportunity, Mark. <laughs> well, great, then I don't mind asking you um, to say a little bit more, because I guess the sort of the optimistic angle, which I've always been very skeptical about, but the optimistic angle is that through the comparability of treatment principle, the... Paris Club can kind of be a lever for making countries that are getting relief from the Paris Club go get the same deal from their private creditors. And, and as I understand it, that, that comparability of treatment principle is sort of central to the, the intended working of the common framework as well. And I, I guess I have, to, I have to ask the cynical question, which is whether there's anything really to the comparability of treatment principle? Like what makes it meaningful and enforceable? What prevents a country from just going to these private creditors that you're, you're bringing up and saying, oh, we're supposed to ask you for debt relief. So consider this our, uh, our request. And the, you know, the private creditors say, thank you for your request. It's denied and everybody goes their separate ways. Um, so official money is just going into the pockets of these private creditors. What? What prevents that from happening? Does anything prevent it from happening? Mm, I mean, like, so countries, they need to do all they can, the debtors, in order to convince their creditors to restructure. But the, the debtors are the only ones that have like uh, an obligation to try to do this. If the debtors, they don't try to do this in ways that please the Paris Club, the Paris Club can simply cancel the agreement, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that necessarily if the countries they don't reach, uh, I mean, you see, I mean, like comparability of treatment in practice, and this is something that should be beautiful material to write a paper about. Uh, I saw a piece by a uh, rating agency, Fitch, very recently. I mean, they were looking at like the last few and like they actually noted that, I mean, like comparability of treatment very often is, I mean, despite it should always be there, it's not even mentioned maybe in the agreement. Then very often it's not respected. It's a matter of uh, the Paris Club wanting it to happen. But then this is about the political pressure that they can exert as the governments they are. So they can exert this pressure also towards the creditors. And this is a bit what happened uh, with the HIPIC, right? But I mean, that remains to be seen whether, whether this extended Paris Club with G20, with China and everyone is really willing to, 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 to pull the strings so that the private sector moves. I mean, I would assume they can do that, right? These are like the biggest, most powerful governments, but they will need to want to push their domestic residents to do their part. And do you think that that's very likely? I mean, so for the Chinese perspective, I think is, is complicated, it seems to my mind, because you've got China Development Bank and Exim Bank and, uh, who knows what the Chinese government wants other than that it doesn't want private Western creditors to get a better deal than those entities. And so its incentives are a little complicated. And then does the US government, is it gonna put the screws on Elliott or, or BlackRock or Aurelius? So we see a lot, of, a lot of parties at the table these days with big positions. I mean, so what do we think is likely to happen there? What can I, what, <laughs> I don't know, what can I tell you? Uh, I mean, like if there should be, I mean, if at least there is some sort of understanding, right? That uh, the, the public-private conglomerate from China is gonna contribute with an amount of relief and the Western conglomerate, which in financial terms means only 
large uh, corporations, banks, and, co and commodity traders, they do their part because they are forced by by advanced economist governments. Maybe maybe they would agree, right? I mean, it, I think like these Chinese development banks or like they act uh, quasi commercially, but they they were part of DSSI, right? It's not that they, I mean, they don't look like that they are trying to keep one dollar more, right? I mean, I think they have oh. other objectives in mind, right? But this is not really financial, what is moving them, right? I mean, the, the Chinese, they seem very ready to read. I mean, maybe they are doing the strategy of the past of the Paris Club of reprofiling and blah, blah, maybe softer terms, uh, not really nominal haircuts, apparently, from what I read. But I mean, it doesn't seem to me, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that if they see the other parts doing their bit, uh, they, they wouldn't chip in. I mean, they were, they are already well placed there. I don't see why they need to go into a fight. But then like, sincerely, uh, I mean, like Congo or, 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 or Gambia or Mozambique or guys, I mean, these, these countries are being ripped off by, by Western companies, right? I mean, like, I don't see how we can blame China for anything there. So, I mean, uh, there is Chinese money still there, and I can see how they they want these people to chip in in whatever resolution there is for this. So, again, this goes back to, 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 to the governments of <laughs> the countries where these companies operate, right, to maybe do the part. But, I mean, like, I mean, again, reading some numbers, but it's just astonishing, right? Like, uh, Congo is losing, like, I don't know, like, like maybe like 60% of the entire oil revenue is going to oil companies, 20% of the revenue they receive goes to just paying one loan that is associated with one of the commodity traders. This is stuff that is insane. Aitor, uh, we, have, we have kept you too long, but I, I'm going to ask my last question, and I think it relates to uh, yet different papers of yours, but you can, uh, you can correct me. Uh, in giving us your answer. So please indulge us in one last question. I promise this will be the last uh, before we close the, at least this episode of talking to you. So I remember hearing you talk uh, some years ago, I think now at a conference. Uh, I, I, I was very intimidated by you. I don't think I came to talk to you. Uh, um, now we're old friends, but uh, uh, I remember, I think you were talking about the need for us, meaning for the official sector institutions, uh, including uh, European authorities or the IMF in that when they designed a program that they needed to think about how that would impact the borrowing incentives uh, of the country vis-a-vis -vis the private market. And I started thinking about uh, what you had said or what my memory is of what you said when I saw the news that Greece uh, is now borrowing at negative yields. And I, I think maybe, I don't remember, I think it was a five-year bond. And I mean, Greece has this ridiculously bad fiscal position as I understand it. It has a huge amount of debt that it owes to uh, the official sector that's, you know, stretched out for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. And that seems to create this huge incentive for the private sector to load up all of its lending to Greece within uh, anything, any period shorter than the official program. And then we have the Financial Times reporting, oh, Greece is now borrowing at negative rates. And that strikes me as bullshit. Like it, it is giving the wrong impression of economic strength. And it's largely driven by the fact that the official lending is so stretched out that it creates this sort of little pocket in which private lending can take advantage of the fact that they can lend as much as they want because Greece doesn't have to pay back all of its debts for longer. So anyway, I, I know that was a little rambling, but you know, no, 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 no. you lived through the European debt crisis and you were probably one of the people designing uh, solutions. And I, I don't know how, are, are you rejoicing when you see the Greek, uh, Greece borrowing at negative rates or are you thinking, oh shit, this is not gonna turn out well? Uh, I mean, the fact that they can borrow at negative rates is, uh, is fantastic. It's fantastic because, 
I mean, it's hard. It's very hard to think how that is going to end well, right? But I mean, like uh, as you very well explained, most of Greek debt, uh, the the weight of that debt is going to be kicking in in the end of the twenties, right? I mean, you see, if you have a look at this funny DSA that I mentioned by the Commission, like that is a DSA for Greece that is stretching for fifty years, and you see a massive jump on the line of the debt of about twenty percent of GDP. And that is because there is a parallel loan that is not normally mentioned about because Greece is not paying the interest in two of the loans. And those interest is being accumulated in a parallel loan that accumulates interest at the same time. Uh, so you see, I mean, like uh, the situation for, for the guys looks very difficult in the future, but all the way until then, I mean, like, I mean, like people has been beating down their positive yield bonds all the way down to Spanish levels. It's fine. I mean, like there is, I mean, I don't see any default risk there, right? And my markets, they don't see it either. You have like a, a, a purchaser of a first resort in the form of the ECB collateral rules. They have disappeared and like for as long as that is in place, I mean, the, there is good revenue, there is good yield to, to, to get there. I mean, like it's Euro, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I think it's very, very logical what is going on, and in a sense, it's good news. I mean, that's what policy, what what monetary policy, and having a very powerful central bank is doing for us now is for the Greek authorities and those guys in Brussels to to use this space properly, wisely, and like maybe you can go somewhere. But you see, I mean, like, and just talking about where market rates are today, because this is an issue we discussed long uh, when I was in in Luxembourg. I mean, like Greece has, I don't know how many billions, but it's tens of billions of its debt. The interest rate is swapped, is fixed, because they had fears of interest rates going up. Can you imagine the cost of those swaps now? <laughs> you better don't think about it. I mean, the ESM has some swaps issued for uh, part of the Greek loans. The Greek loan with the ESM, the interest rate is fixed with swaps. So if it wouldn't be fixed with swaps, the interest rate on the ESM loan to Greece now would be negative. But effectively, it's not negative. It's 2% or 1.5% or something, right? So, and then they have to post a lot of collateral on the side. So uh, a lot of things about Greece. Hmm? Well, Aitor, thank you so much for, for coming on. We, um, I think we, we have maybe 10 or 15 things we still would like to talk with you about. And so maybe um, if we let a reasonable period of time go by, like two days, maybe we can convince you to come back um, <laughs> and do another episode and then another episode after that. But um, I, would be, I would be delighted. And the moment we can do it with a bottle of wine in front of us. That would be perfect. I, I will, I at least eagerly await that day. I think Me Too does too. Um, but until then... Until then, thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> Thank, oh, you. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me.